What does true wellness mean to you? I'm Claudia Cometa, and that is the question I will be leading with in the Minding Wellness podcast. Each and every week, I will bring you experts who will share their personal wellness journeys and their insights into what it means to mind our wellness. Health is a state of body. Wellness is a state of being. Let's dive into improving our state of being. Okay, my friends, this is the final COVID-19 from the Frontlines episode, not because the pandemic is over, but because honestly, I've just gotten a little bit tired of talking about it. It is still an important part of all of our lives, has changed all of our lives for really ever. And I think that all of the episodes that I've covered on this remain valuable, but I have chosen to move away from this focus for a little bit. Maybe I need to come back to it. If I do, I will certainly do so. But for now, I am excited to finalize this series with Dr. Jeffrey Galvin. He is the medical director and founder of Vitality Medical Wellness Institute. He is a board-certified emergency medicine and obesity medicine physician. He served as a major in the United States Air Force, specializing in trauma and emergency care. After completing his military service, he settled in North Carolina with his wife and three children. With over 25 years experience working in some of the busiest emergency departments in the country, he has cared for over 50,000 emergency and trauma patients. I think he is the perfect physician to end this series with due to his experience, his heart, his passion for setting the stage right and getting accurate information to the masses. I enjoyed this episode. We covered conspiracy theories, um, how to address and often debunk them. And we also covered what his experiences are as an emergency medicine physician working in the ED during this pandemic. Lots of valuable insights. I truly enjoyed this episode and I hope you enjoy it as well. All right, super excited to round out this series with Dr. Jeffrey Galvin. I know he's going to bring so many valuable insights. I appreciate him taking the time out of his busy day and schedule to come share these insights with us. So with that, thank you so much for being here, Dr. Galvin. Well, thank you, Claudia. I'm uh, happy to be here. All right. So let's first dive into the question that I ask all of my guests, which is what does true wellness mean to you? You know, for me, and it's a passion of mine, um, true wellness is really letting people achieve kind of their ultimate expression of their lives, meaning you know, having the ability both mentally, physically to achieve, you know, not just the things they have to achieve, but the things that they want to achieve, you know, those, those core you know, desires that we have. And if you're not feeling good, if you've got medical problems, if, you're, if your brain's not working right, if your sleep's not right, you know, there's, there's all these different pieces that come together. You know, you can't really achieve that. And then oftentimes people don't feel it's achievable. And we always focus in our clinic on nutrition, fitness, sleep, stress, and, and hormones and, and nutrition, you know, to try to get people where they need to be and, you know, try to get to root cause of things. And that way, you can, like I said, we want people to achieve what they want to achieve, not what they need to achieve, but what they want to achieve. And for me, the ability to do that is the essence of wellness. 
if I tweeted, which I don't, I don't know anything about Twitter, but um, I think that would be a tweetable moment to achieve the ultimate expression of your life. So I, I love that. So let's go ahead and dive in first with a little bit about your background. So give the listeners um, a bit about your medical background and the work that you do now. Sure. So uh, I was kind of interested in, in science as a kid and kind of you know, really liked medicine and so was a biology major and history major in college. And then, you know, went to medical school. And, in, you know, in medical school, the couple, first couple of years is book work. And then you go do your rotations. And, you know, as we went through our rotations, you know, people would drop off. You know, be like, somebody finished their surgery resident in their rotation. Like, that's what I'm doing, you know, and they're a surgeon. And then, you know, somebody did their OBGYN, you know, rotation. That's what it is. That's mm -hmm. what I'm doing. And I was watching my classmates kind of drop off into these little, you know, like, you know, their passions, right? And I would get finished with my surgery resident rotation be like that's what i want to do it's awesome then i do gyn oh this is awesome and i do peds this is awesome and finally i hit emergency medicine which is everything right and not only is it everything but it's sort of immediate and we actually in a lot of medicine we don't real we just manage people's decline right i mean that's the sad truth of it and in emergency medicine i kind of felt like you could actually save lives and for me, that was an exciting thing. And then, so I, I did my residency in Boston. I was chief resident at Boston Medical Center. And then went into the military. and was a military emergency position uh, for a number of years. And then uh, separated from the military, moved to Charlotte, recruited down here by a couple other ex-military guys who were running an emergency medicine group in Charlotte. And really enjoyed it for the first couple of years. But then, you know, a funny thing happened. On one hand, I had three young kids. I was working crazy amounts of hours. And I, you know, I was in my, you know, third, you know, my late 30s, early 40s, and I felt like crap. And I'd come home and they want to play and I could just sit on the couch. And my blood pressure was going up. I was having cholesterol issues. And, you know, in the course of about a three month period, I had three guys all 40 or younger come in dead basically of cardiac arrest including a guy i knew and and not only that but as one of my wife's best friends and you know was pumping gas dropped dead sudden cardiac death and um brought him in and tried to save him he was dead you know i mean as you probably know most of these cardiac arrests in the field you know the survivability is very very low and you know i I, when we're running a code, like the last person I'm kind of looking at is the patient. I'm, I'm managing all these people, all these things. And at the end of the code, you know, the patient's there, he's intubated, he doesn't look normal. And I'm, I'm thinking to myself, gosh, he looks familiar. And I look at the patient, the chart, and I'm like, it didn't ring a bell. And about 10 minutes later, I'm writing up my chart and the nurse comes and said, hey, listen, the patient's wife is here and she's a friend. She's, she knows you. She's a friend of yours. And I realized that they had different last names. And so we had, you know, we'd known each other socially and it, and it kind of all came in a rush. And I said, well, what does she know? She goes, she, all she knows is that he fell down at the gas station. Mm -hmm. And so I had to walk in and basically destroy this woman's life, young daughter. And, you know, went home that night and, I, you know, I was weeping. I was like, this is, I go, and then I said, you know, Paula, if, if I don't do something about my own life, that's going to be me. I'm going to leave you guys. And so that kind of got me taking a deep dive into learning about nutrition, about hormones, about wellness, about optimizing human performance, and quickly realized all the things we've been telling people were wrong. Restrictive diets, low-fat diets, like none of that stuff works. And so I started, you know, 
change in my own lifestyle, got, got sort of some hormonal issues that I was dealing with, dealt with, started, you know, exercising right, eating right, living right. And all of a sudden, like my life transformed. I was like, oh, I feel like I'm, I did 10 years ago. And at the time we were doing, uh, we had started doing CrossFit and people at, at Cross, the CrossFit gym kept coming up to me, hey doc, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? And ultimately the owner of the, of the CrossFit gym said, hey, you know, doc, we got this little, these two little rooms upstairs, you should open a clinic. And that's what we did. We opened this like, clinic in the middle of a loud, unair conditioned, unheated CrossFit gym um, about you know, 10, 11 years ago. And you know, through the years it's evolved and now we have our own building and we, you know, we do these state-of-the-art human performance evaluations, functional medicine, where we you know, try to get to the root cause of disease and try to you know, let people fix themselves, essentially. But, so I've been doing that for 10 years, but I still am passionate about emergency medicine and it's in my blood. And so I you know, continued to work um, emergency, you know, emergency medicine and backed off quite a bit for, for about five years. I did full-time emergency medicine and ran the, fit, the clinic full-time. Now I, I work less in the emergency room, but I still do it. And then, you know, a little vagary of emergency medicine is that we make our schedules many months in advance. And normally I work, you know, a couple of shifts a month just to help out the, help out the group. And back in November, I think, or maybe early December, they came to me and said, hey, you know, we're really short-staffed in March, April, May, and June. Do you mind like picking up six or eight shifts a month that those months instead? And I, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of the guy they go to like when they have, when somebody has a baby or something. And so I'm like, yeah, I'm glad to do it. I only work nights. I typically work the weekend, so it doesn't really affect the clinic that much. But apparently they had this pandemic schedule that no <laughs> one told me about when I agreed to do that. So I find myself working all these, you know, all these shifts in the middle of all of this stuff. And so, um, you know, and, and suddenly found myself in a very unusual position. I'd come home from work one night, you know, early on and had maybe 10 Facebook messages from a variety of people, you know, people I know, people, friends of mine that had, you know, had, had with these links to these, these websites with these crazy conjecture and all this information that was wrong. And I'm like, Oh my gosh, I'm just going to shoot like a quick video put it on Facebook for my friends so that they just like know what to do to like to, to keep themselves safe, what to look out for, what not to worry about. And I posted that thing and went to bed and, and came, you know, woke up and, and had all these new messages. And like, and it turns out that vid, that Facebook video has been seen over a million times. Wow. And now I do one every day and now I'm kind of trapped. We have a big YouTube following and, um, and then, you know, I've gotten, uh, I've caught the, uh, I've caught the, the ire of the uh, conspiracy theorists because I did a, a podcast kind of pointing out a lot of factual errors in the uh, pandemic video that everybody's been sent. And so suddenly I've, I've, I've been dealing with things I have no experience whatsoever in dealing with, but still working in the emergency department and trying to give people good advice because that's what we need, right? Is, is like reasonable advice. And this is a very tricky virus, right? Most of us are going to be absolutely fine. You know, our, our risk if we're if we're less than 45 and no medical problems is less than getting killed in a car accident in a year. If you're less than 65 and healthy, it's just a little higher than that. But if you do happen to have underlying medical problems, cardiac disease, immunosuppression, diabetes, obesity, and especially if you're above 65, your risk might be 60, 70 percent. And so it's very highly dangerous. 
And so, you know, it's, it's very insidious. And, you know, and, and so how do you navigate this? And then we've shut the country down. People have lost their livelihoods and they're, they're scared and they're, they're afraid and, and they don't know what to do and they don't know what to think. And, you know, it's, it's a breeding ground for a lot of people that are fear mongering. And, you know, I, what I feel personally are giving people, you know, bad advice. And that's why I've continued to do the, the videos basically. So that's my very long involved story. I'm sorry for taking so no, much time telling it. No, it's perfect. It's a, it's a perfect concise um, journey. And I, you know, I actually, I actually love guests like you because I, I feel like I don't even need to ask any more questions. You just answered everything. No, I'm kidding. I have got questions. But, um, but I, I, first and foremost, want to say thank you for serving our country. I think that that needs to be pointed out. Um, I'm sure that you have seen and done lots of, lots of things in your life and you've dedicated, you know, years of your life to the military. And I think that that needs to be acknowledged and pointed out. So thank you so much for that. And thank you for being on here and for sharing some of this. I know that wasn't necessarily necessarily your intention when you shot that first Facebook video, but here you are now being asked by, by little people like me to continue to share. So let's start by talking about the COVID realities you're seeing in the ED at the present time. What, what do you want the public to know from a physician's perspective on the front lines? Well, let me tell you from my perspective, first of all, because, you know, we saw the pictures from Italy. We saw the pictures from New York, right? And I have lots of friends that are in New York. I was hearing these stories. And so when it started, you know, and we're in North Carolina, so I figured, well, we're going to be a couple of weeks behind. And so all of us thought that it was going to look like Italy and, and, and New York, you know, overflowing beds, you know, people on Valley are having to make these decisions like, who am I going to save? Who am I going to let die? And, you know, it never really materialized because, you know, we instituted social distancing and we kind of lowered that, that spike of cases. But what we didn't realize is that like all elective cases would get canceled in the hospital and then people would be terrified to come in. And so, you know, there were a week or two there where we would be in the emergency department. It was crickets. There was like nobody. I mean, I had one night where instead of seeing 20, 25 patients, I saw six. Mm -hmm. And so that was surprising. And then we started seeing very sick people coming in from nursing homes in these high risk populations. We were seeing COVID patients, but even now the volume hasn't recovered. Now they started doing elective cases again. I think people are starting to come in. But now what we're finding is that, you know, there are people that should have come in two, three weeks ago, were afraid to, and now we're coming in much sicker. So the reality has been very much different than what I anticipated. I anticipated chaos. And what we found was this sort of very slow burning thing with patients coming in with COVID who were really, really sick. And then you know, this sort of educational transformation because, you know, normally if someone were to come in with very low oxygen saturations, high fever, pneumonia on x-ray or whatever, like we would have, our fear would be that that person would tire out, they would respiratory arrest and they would die. So to prevent that, we would put it, you know, we would paralyze them, sedate them, put a breathing tube in, put them on the vent to support them until they got better. And what we learned relatively quickly and through hard experience was if we did that with COVID patients, they would die. They would not get off the vent, you know, 60, 80% mortality rate. And we started realizing that these people that had really, really low oxygen saturations because of, we think the way the virus binds the, the, the beta subgroup of hemoglobin can maintain these really low sats, but they don't they tire out. So you've got some room there to not intubate them. So like, if you told me that we would, I would be like watching, observing a patient with an oxygen saturation of 75%, you know, and admitting them with just high flow oxygen. Um, two months ago, I would be like, yeah, what world are you talking, you know, are you calling me from? That will never happen. And now it's routine. 
So it's interesting that we have you know, a subset of very sick people with COVID that are, are critically ill. The majority of them are older. We've had a terrible nursing home outbreak here. In one nursing home alone, I think there's been 26 deaths. Mm. Um, we've had a fair number of uh, prisoners. I took care of a you know prisoner that you know all the risk factors plus in prison you know who's a COVID patient, and then we've had a fair number of people that have come in that have it that we can send home, and then you know just recently I, I was I posted on one of our videos recently I had a lady that came in who was older, 65, 67 years old, with diabetes and COPD, who had COVID two weeks ago, recovered, and then came in in florid heart failure. And so now, you know, there's this question of, you know, are there subsequent sequelae from having COVID? Because, you know, we think it may bind to the ACE2 receptor, which is in a lot of cardiovascular tissues. And are we setting people up for secondary illnesses as a result of the COVID diagnosis? Now, that's conjecture on my part, because I just know that that lady had CHF and never had it before. Um, and I don't know why, but we're starting to see some things like that. And we're also starting to see these Kawasaki-like in um, presentations in pediatrics. Um, and for the majority of the pediatric population, there's almost no risk at all. Yet there is this subset that is very, you know, maybe at risk. And so, you know, it's changing day to day. And I never in my life thought I would be dealing with something in the emergency department that literally might change the treatment might change between Friday and Monday. And I think that that's been my personal experience, not in North Carolina, huge volumes of patients, but very kind of complicated, sick patients combined with people who are like pretty good. And then lots of question marks and lots of mysteries and lots of trying to figure out what is the best thing for this patient? Because the last thing any of us want to do is make a mistake and kill somebody. Um, and especially, we don't want to, you know, go back in, in hindsight and say, wow, I should have done better. And so I think a lot of us are really trying to, to keep open lines of communication with other physicians. And I think in particular, emergency medicine and critical care is doing a lot of open communication so that when they discover something in New York City or California, those pieces of knowledge get disseminated to as many people as possible so that we can share it and, and do a better job. Because, you know, I don't think we did a good job at the beginning Although, you know, it was not by intention. Nobody was trying to hurt people. But I do think the treatments we were doing initially were, were probably not the, the right ones. But we had no way of knowing otherwise. So, you know, it's, it's just one of those, those horrible facts of life that we, you know, we live and we learn. Right. Yeah. And I know, you know, in the medical field, you, usually it's very rare to come across something so rare that you can't find anything on it, that it's brand new. You know, there's no up-to-date article on it. There's nothing to reference. So I, I definitely feel for those of you on the front lines trying to navigate, you know, like in muddy waters and you can't see. So I, I appreciate all that you do and, and the insights that you're sharing with others. Let's, let's go ahead and dive into the pandemic. I would love to hear your take on on this and maybe even other conspiracy theories you've heard. What's sort of your take on it and what, what's the takeaway for, for the lay public as they continue to hear these theories? You know, I think one of the things is that, you know, the, remember the pandemic, what, what's the, what are they really trying to do? They're trying to sell books, right? And they, they, that, that thing was, was just masterfully produced to mix true and false in such a way to like cast doubt on everything. Right. And I've, I've had people, I mean, there are thousands of comments, you know, calling me a communist, 
a member of the CIA. I worked for Bill Gates. I mean, it's, it's, it really kind of put me into a little bit of a depression the morning after I posted. I started reading through all these comments. And then, you know, a funny thing happened. I started getting other comments and messages and texts and calls from physicians, from friends, from people I went to high school saying, you know, thank you. You know, I was really believing that stuff. And you kind of pointed out a lot of inconsistencies. And honestly, I think I did a very poor job. There are other doctors that have done a far better job pointing out the, fall the fallacies in that, um, in that narrative that they're trying to spin virologists who are you know experts in the field a lot of the things that are, are implied are conjecture there's no way to confirm whether or not she had an argument with anthony fauci and you know this or that what i can tell you is that you know she claims to have discovered been part of the team that discovered hiv she was like in college when it was discovered sure her first paper came out two years after the virus was discovered so there's a lot of fallacies and you know if you look into her own personal history there's a lot of you know, there was a very blockbuster paper that she was involved with that was subsequently retracted because the cell lines they were using were contaminated and nobody could reproduce it. And that's science, right? If you make a claim, you need to prove it. Um, and that's the same. If you're going to make extraordinary accusations, then you need to provide extraordinary proof. And they provided almost none. And I think some of those are the things that I brought out. You know, of interest, I think one of the things was that, that I've gotten from, you know, from many of these people that believe this is that there's no such thing that they're that the, they're just they're just flu deaths the numbers are all wrong and, and the problem with debating with the with with people of a certain mind is no matter what information source you you quote they'll they'll claim it's fake and it's it's hard to have a civil discourse and you know I, I'm trying to educate some some people in our in our videos that listen if we want to have a discussion about this this is the way to do it you make a claim and you provide objective proof of that claim that we can examine and then we'll we'll respond in a respectful way with our own data but to just you know to attack anybody that that has a differing viewpoint you know speaks ill of our country and you know i'm sorry i took an oath to you know defend the country against enemies foreign and domestic and so i feel like it's important that we point these things out because you know people are going to die if they don't take reasonable precautions and, you know, to, to say that there's no such thing. And, you know, one of the things we did last, I think on Monday, we asked a simple question. I said, hey, listen, if you know anybody that's got, that's had COVID, just post in the comments, you know, how, yes or no, how many, and what state you're in. And um, at, between our YouTube channel and Facebook, there are over 500 comments. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, probably 70 to 80% of people on there said yes. I do know somebody, I know 10 people, I had it. So it was very interesting to read through there. And a lot of people, unfortunately, knew people that had died. But, um, you know, you'd want to take that data and see, look, at 80% of the people know somebody. No, I, I have sample bias in my, you know, that's totally a, a great example of sample bias. Who, who listens to my videos? People that are interested, that are worried about this. So they're probably more likely to be worried about it if they know somebody that's had it, a family member or maybe themselves. So my sample is, is, is contaminated, right? You can't, you can't broadcast that and say, well, the entire, you know, the entire population of the U.S., it's these percentages. And that's what the doctors in Bakersfield did. They took a a population of sick people that they they tested for COVID-19 and they took that positive rate and then they tried to extrapolate that to the general population. Well, the general population is not sick, so you can't 
you can't compare the two. It's sample bias. And that's like a, just a simple example of how people can look at this data and, and not understand. And, you know, in our, our culture, right, it's, it's all about, you know, sound bites and, and little, you know, 30 seconds pieces of information and nobody really goes back and looks at the sources and examines them. And I think that that's what's driving a lot of these conspiracy theories. And some of them are, are really, you know, out there. I mean, there are people that, you know, that their belief is that Bill Gates is, you know, going to, is coming up with a, a vaccine that's going to be mandatory for everybody that is going to have a microchip in it that is going to track you wherever you go. And then there's going to be a second virus that's going to kill off anybody that didn't get the first vaccine. And then everybody's going to be controlled that way. And that's a very difficult narrative to prove either way. So if it's true, I'd like to see some proof about it, right? And, it, you know, when we think it's false, but how do you disprove that? So, you know, it, it, when, when things are that sort of extreme, it, there's almost no way to engage people in a civil manner. And, you know, and people are losing their livelihood. And I've been an advocate, you know, for, for a number of weeks now that we have to open up in a smart way. And we've got to do what we can to allow people that are low risk, those younger people without medical problems, to get back to work and let the people and, and protect the people at higher risk. And yeah, is it gonna, you know, is it fair for the people that have high risk? It's not. It's absolutely not. But, you know, the faster we can get people exposed and achieve some sort of herd immunity, the faster we'll get through this. Um, and so the conspiracy stuff is very, very difficult to deal with. And, and, you know, I don't think I have the intellectual chops to really, you know, to really stand my ground as well as I might, you know, but I do my best. I think you've done a great job, which is why I reached out to you because I really, I kind of wanted somebody to take it in a very matter of fact way and not, um, you know, get too emotional on either side. And I think that you've done a very good job, even though you're, you're stating in a very humble way. I think you've done a really great job at, at providing the facts and, and helping, you know, lay people who maybe aren't so familiar with stats or, or you know, or, or medical um, journals and, and the, what goes into studies to understand these biases and, and the fact that these numbers that are being thrown out don't have any basis to them. What is your advice for the general population on both staying healthy as the country slowly opens up again and for seeking only the information they need without getting sucked into sort of these news and media spirals? Yeah, so I think my advice that I give my patients, that I give my viewers is that, you know, the, the simplest thing, like wash your hands, right? Soap kills the virus. So, you know, we're gonna, if we're going to get exposed, it's going to likely not be from somebody who's sick coming up to us and sneezing in our face. It's more likely going to be we're going to touch a surface that's contaminated and touch our face with it. And so, you know, wash your hands, take reasonable precautions. Don't lock yourself in a, you know, in a plastic bubble someplace, but take reasonable precautions. If you have these underlying medical problems, isolate yourself as much as possible. It's not, you know, it's not, impossible to do but it's certainly difficult many people can work from home if you are out and about take reasonable precautions you know if you go into a store wear a mask and you remember you're not it's not a violation of your rights it's a, a sign that you're being a good citizen you're being a good neighbor because the mask is not going to protect you from getting the virus but if you happen to be in that four or five day asymptomatic stage if you yourself are infected and you haven't developed any symptoms yet, it may help spread the virus, keep the virus from spreading from you to somebody else. And if there's just a 1% chance that I might inadvertently 
you know, infect somebody who's at a high risk and they end up dying, I don't mind wearing a mask. I mean, I'm, I'm wearing it, I'm going into the store and I'm coming out and I'm taking it off. That's all we're asking. Nobody's asking to, nobody's telling you to infringe your civil rights. Do it as a good neighbor. Wash your hands and take reasonable precautions. Try to maintain social distancing. And, you know, just keep an eye on the, your local numbers because ultimately it's a local problem, right? And as we reopen, we really need to do it at a very local level. So, you know, in my area outside of Charlotte, you know, we don't have that many cases. We have some, though. We can't be completely, um, we can't completely open up. But if I lived in Montana and there were no cases in three counties, then I would be, you know, feel a little bit different. If I'm in, in, in the Bronx, like my, where my in-laws live, then I'd be very cautious. So I think you have to kind of keep an eye on local sources and, you know, question, have a questioning attitude at everything. Don't believe anything I say, you know, Claudia, don't let, don't let them believe anything you say, do your own fact checking. And if it, you know, if it doesn't smell right, try to find a source that can clarify it for you because there's lots of people out there posting a variety of different things. And it, it's not that difficult to find ones that are, are seem to be coming from a place without a big agenda. And I, I think that's the best advice because it's still a fluid situation. There's still much that we don't know and there's just no hard and fasts about anything. And I think we also need to be aware that there, it's very likely that we're going to have a tapering off of cases and then likely recurrence in the fall because that's what these viruses typically do. And we may have several waves. We just need to be aware. I always tell people, take care of yourselves, take care of your families, and take care of those around you. And if we follow that mantra, we're going to do our best as good citizens protecting ourselves and protecting others. I really appreciate what seems to be so logical, but so important to point out, I think, at this time, because I think we often lose logic when so many pieces of information, some some accurate, some lacking accuracy coming at us. So I appreciate you reminding us all of those really important points. While we wrap up, I'm going to put all of your links and information in the show notes, but can you let the listeners know where they can find you either on YouTube or maybe they live in your area and they want to join your clinic, or maybe you do tell telehealth. So give them all, all the options. Yeah, we, we do have telehealth. We do, it all, we do it all. We have patients all over the world, honestly. That we, uh, we do a lot of executive health and, and uh, human performance optimization. But Vitality Medical Wellness Institute, you can find us on Facebook and YouTube. We have channels there. Um, you can look at my personal Facebook page, Jeffrey Galvin. Um, and also our website is uh, vitalitymwi.com. And I think we've got Instagram. We got all these crazy things. I'm just, I'm learning as we go, <laughs> all this stuff. I'm sure if somebody told you a few years back, you'd be a, a YouTube star, you would have said, uh, what? <laughs> so, um, yeah. You know, it uh, is what, what it is. YouTube. <laughs> <Right>. YouTube. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Galvin. I know you're a busy man. I appreciate your time and your insights and uh, very honored to wrap up this series with your, with your help. And I appreciate it. Claudia, it was my absolute pressure. Pleasure. Well, this wraps up 13 COVID-19 from the Frontlines episodes. I hope that they have been valuable for you and that you have found some peace. I feel like the intention was to bring you a source of information that is accurate and also does not bring the fear that a lot of the TV news media brings. So that's my hope. We will continue with our regular programming to mind your wellness. So stay tuned. Lots more to come. Be well and safe and see you here again next time.